John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. This is God's word. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. In uh, many Scottish pulpits, they have some huge pulpits that you can hide uh, a lot in. Many of the pulpits have uh, inscriptions in there or things written, engraved into the pulpit. And in many of the Scottish pulpits of the Free Church of Scotland, they have uh, this verse here, or this phrase within verse 21, where the Greeks come and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it's meant to remind the preachers that uh, the people wish to see Jesus. The people wish to know Jesus Christ. The people wish to come to Jesus Christ. So it's a healthy reminder for the preacher not to preach his own philosophies or uh, cultural insights, but um, to preach Christ. And it's a helpful reminder for you as the congregation that you ought to come wanting to see Jesus Christ. That is with spiritual eyes to come to know Christ in his word. And so I hope that'll be the case today as we look at this passage. A very heavy passage here. We've just gone over the beginning of John chapter 12 with Jesus's triumphal entry. And here we see that there are some Greeks who come to see Jesus. And this would have been somewhat of a common thing, at least it wasn't uncommon for Greek people who um, were had, had just after Alexander the Great basically controlled the known world. There were many Greek people all over the Roman Empire. And it wasn't uncommon for there to be God-fearing Gentiles, people who believed in the God of Israel, but didn't necessarily subscribe to all of the customs. But nevertheless, they believed in the God of Israel. And these uh, Greeks come here at Passover time. They were probably uh, used to coming at the religious feast to celebrate as far as Gentiles could. And just for, for clarification, Greeks and Gentiles are somewhat distinct, but they can also be used interchangeably because basically you have Jews and then you have everyone else. And Greeks were a part of everyone else. So Greeks and Gentiles are very similar here. And what we see here is likely these Greeks who probably were Greeks, but the point is to see that there's non-Jews, that is people who are not ethnically Jewish, coming to Jesus, asking to see him. And what is very significant about this is, if you remember from the end of our passage last week in verse 19, the Pharisees end up saying, we're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And this is partly John's intent to anticipate 
how the gospel, that is what Jesus is coming to do, is going to extend to people from all of the world. So as the Pharisees ironically say, the whole world is going after him. What do we see immediately after? People from the world, people who are not Jewish, coming and seeing Jesus, or at least desiring to see Jesus. And that's John's way of anticipating the radical reality that what Jesus is coming to do is not simply going to be for Jewish people, but for people like you and me who are not ethnically Jewish, for people of the whole world, that the extent of the redemption that Christ is going to bring is going to reach to the far ends of the earth. So as these Greeks come to see Jesus, Philip and Andrew end up taking their request to Jesus. And notice in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it doesn't seem like he answers their request, at least on surface level. It almost seems like he's ignoring the Greeks here. Something triggers Jesus and he doesn't respond to the Greeks, but he says, okay, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So though it doesn't seem like he answers their request, what we can see is that he actually responds on a far greater level in a far greater way than any of these Greeks could have ever imagined. His response indicates that the hour has finally come. Notice all throughout John's gospel, Jesus has always spoken about this hour as though it's not yet. He always says, my time has not yet come. My hour is not yet. Now, finally, as these people from the world come to him, he knows that his hour has finally come where he as the son of man must be raised up on the cross lifted up that he has spoken about before. Think of John chapter three, where he as the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever looks upon him, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And as the message of that crucified Savior, as the message of Jesus Christ lifted up, goes out to the world, the request of these men, these few men here who come and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus, their request is going to be answered in a far greater way because as that message of a crucified Savior goes out, a people from every tongue, tribe, language and nation will hear and will see with spiritual eyes, that is, they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to see what the cross of Christ actually achieves for them, namely the forgiveness of sins before a holy God, redemption and reconciliation to God the Father. And this is what is in view here when Jesus speaks of his glorification. This is why it is so glorious. His hour has come for him to be glorified because what he is going to achieve in this moment has cosmic consequences, the greatest event in all of human history. Jesus' glorification here is, of course, his death, resurrection and ascension. But what's interesting is that in this passage here, it seems like the glorification, that is his hour, his, the, the hour where the Son of Man must be glorified, is actually focusing in on the shame of the cross. We see the heights of the glory that Jesus brings because of the depths of the shame and humiliation that he is willing to go to. The glory of God is seen in the way that a a shameful and humiliating death as the cross, and it was a shameful and humiliating death. You were hung there naked for people to mock and scorn. You suffocated, choking on your own blood until eventually you slowly died. And this is the death that was ordained 
for our Savior. And what is absolutely glorious is that the shame of the cross, which looked like total defeat, it looked like total defeat, that actually brought about the greatest act of redemption and the greatest victory the world has ever known. And this is what makes it so glorious. And we see this in a passage written 700 years earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53, a very common passage, one of the servant songs, written centuries before Jesus walked on this earth. In Isaiah 52, the word says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That is glorified. So this is God speaking 700 years before Jesus walks on earth saying, my servant is going to come. He's going to act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and he will be exalted. That is glorified. He's going to be glorified. Now, how is it that he's going to be glorified? The very next verses in Isaiah 53 tell us. How is the Son of Man going to be exalted? How is this servant going to be glorified? Well, he's going to be despised and rejected by men. He's going to be a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He is going to be afflicted and led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's a humiliating, shameful picture. That is how the servant is going to be exalted because the pathway to this exaltation is to go through the valley of humiliation. It is to go through the shame of the cross in order that he may be truly seen as glorious because of the extent that he was willing to go to accomplish redemption. This is part of the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour has come where Jesus is going to reveal this to us. And so we see in the very next verse, in verse 24, we see the, the shame and the, the depths that Christ must go to. He shows here how his death is necessary for fruit to come. And then he also shows how that death will become a pattern for all of his followers to follow. Now, the way we're going to look at this today is, mainly in verses 24 to 26, through four points. And the four points kind of follow a logical flow here. The first point we see in verse 24, that is that true life only comes through death. True life only comes through death. Secondly, in verse 25, we must die if we are to live in Christ. Thirdly, beginning of verse 26, living in Christ means serving and following him. And then finally, the fourth point, the end of verse 26, those who serve and follow Christ will be honored by the Father. And the main emphasis here is really verse 25, where Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A heavy passage to understand. So let's look at it through these four points here, beginning at verse 24. True life only comes through death. Jesus explains here that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For a grain of wheat or a kernel to produce a crop, it must be sown into the ground and it must die to its original self. 
That's the point here. It cannot remain exactly as it is, or it's not going to produce anything. So the seed that is sown must die to its original self. It must be transformed so that it can produce fruit. That's the only way fruit is going to come. So in this sense, the seed dies because it dies to its original self as it is buried and it begins to produce an abundance of crop. And that's the only way that fruit can come. The seed cannot remain exactly as it is or nothing is going to happen. The seed must die to its original form so that fruit can come. And the point, of course, in Jesus's life is that if he does not die, no fruit can come. If he does not become the sacrificial substitute to take our sin upon himself and to take the wrath of God upon himself and die and taste the fullness of death, then no fruit can come. If Jesus didn't die, even for all of the good that he teaches, which the Western world is really built off of a lot of Jesus' teachings, a lot of Christianity. But if he did not die, no fruit is going to come. It's pointless. Jesus must die. And so just as the seed is buried into the ground to then produce an abundant crop, Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He is buried into death to then produce an abundance of crop, namely those who follow him. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't simply reveal here the truth about his death and then the redemption that that's going to bring. What he actually does here is then reveals a pattern that we have to follow. And so here's the main point today is verse 25. And our second point, we must die if we are to live in Christ. So after Jesus talks about that seed and how it has to die for fruit to come, he then says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is a heavy statement. Here is the truth about the cost of discipleship. Our allegiance to Christ must be so high that in comparison to our love and devotion and allegiance to Jesus Christ, in comparison to that, We hate our life in this world. The idea is synonymous with us dying to ourselves, with us taking up our cross and following him. Now, Jesus talks about this in Luke 14 in a bit more detail that helps us see this. In Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, Wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is, again, just a huge message. Literally just yesterday, I was chatting to uh, someone who professed to be a Christian, had been in church his whole life, and I mentioned this verse, and he was shocked to think that that was in the Bible. He didn't even realize that Jesus speaks these words. And many people are blissfully ignorant of the heaviness of what Jesus talks about. In the context, he's talking about the cost of following him. There is a great cost to following him. And so he goes on to say immediately after that passage in Luke 14, 26, in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this is clearly talking about taking up our cross. It is the message of self-denial. 
To take up a cross is to take up an instrument of torture, an instrument of execution. It is to follow the same pattern that Jesus has spoken of back into our passage in John 12, 24, where we have to be like a grain of wheat sown into the ground and die in order for fruit to come. This is what he is saying. If you love your life, you're not that grain that dies. You're clinging. You're trying to remain to your original form. So we, of course, must die to ourselves. We must die to sin. We must die to self. We must die to the ways of the world. That is the call to all followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me describe what this might look like in our lives, just with three brief points of what this might look like. It's not so much an application, but rather um, a description of what it practically looks like to hate your life in this world. Firstly, hating your life in this world means seeing your life apart from Christ as worthless. Looking at your life apart from Jesus Christ as absolutely worthless. Now, this is not to undermine the truth that all mankind have inherent dignity, value, and honor. We as Christians, of course, say everyone, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of how old you are in the womb or wherever you are, you have value and dignity ascribed to you because you are made in the image of God. And we, of course, uphold that wonderful truth. But what this is to say is that when we then look at our life on its own terms apart from any work of Christ, we see that we have absolutely nothing of worth to bring before God. We see that we have nothing in our hands to say, God, am I worthy to be forgiven by you? Am I worthy to come to you? We realize we have nothing of worth before God. Our problem is that we often think far too highly of ourselves. We, in this age, are riddled with a humanism that, of course, elevates man. We forget passages like Genesis 6, where God recognizes that the intentions of man's heart are only ever evil all the time. We forget passages like Jeremiah 17, where the heart is deceitful above all things. Or Isaiah 64, where even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. That is when they are done apart from faith, apart from anything of Christ working within us, the best that we can do is like a filthy rag before him. That's the reality. It's like someone living in an area where you only have cloudy and polluted drinking water. I mean, putrid water that you wouldn't even wash your hands with. And that seems perfectly reasonable if that's all you are ever used to. If that's all you are ever used to, if you've never seen pure spring water from Patagonia, if you've never seen clear, crystal clear, pure spring water, then that cloudy and polluted water seems perfectly fine. But the moment you take that cloudy and polluted water and you measure it up against this crystal clear, pure spring water, all of a sudden that water is seen for what it is, namely something putrid and festy and something that you wouldn't even touch. Likewise, 
when we come to see this perfect spotless life of Christ, when we come to see his holiness, when we come to see his perfection, when we come to see this life that he is offering and how perfect it is, and all of a sudden we hold up our life in contrast to that, we see our lives for what it is. A wretched, rebellious heart, a life of sin before a holy God. So apart from Christ, your life is worthless. So hating your life is recognizing that your life is worthless apart from Christ. You have no claim of merit before him. Secondly, hating your life means treasuring Christ so much that worldly pleasures become dispensable. That is, you can take or leave them. Hating your life is seeing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, that everything that once seemed valuable by worldly standards now is dispensable, even at times worthless. Now, this is not to say that we cannot enjoy good things that God provides for us in this world, but it is to say that hating your life in this world means that we do not live for the pleasures of this world. That's not what we live for. We're not, we're not dependent upon them. Material possessions are dispensable to your life. Not going on an annual holiday to tropical North Queensland is not going to drive you into depression. Not being able to watch sporting events will not crush you. You're not d d dependable upon those things. You're not dependent upon those things. They are dispensable. So we no longer live a life following these natural fleshly desires. There has been a shift of values that has taken place. A shift of values where we value Christ far above everything else. For example, Paul expressed this so well in Philippians 4, when he said that he was able to be brought high and brought low. He was able to be well-fed and hungry, to live in abundance or in poverty. And he said, I can do all of these things because of the one who strengthens me. And just a chapter before that, he explained how he had all of these, you might say, possessions or street cred, so to speak, in ancient Israel. He had a lot of good things, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he said, I consider all of this garbage. I consider everything as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The only reason Paul could say that, the only reason he could say that these things that are extremely valuable in the eyes of Israel at that time, they are garbage to him is because he had come to know the treasures of Christ. That's why he could say, I could take or leave it. So he could live in probably luxurious places with Lydia in Acts 16. And he could also be in prison and have nothing or in the middle of the ocean, and he could take or leave whatever was happening. His contentment was in Christ, not in his possessions. And likewise, when we find the life that is in Christ, we treasure him so much that the things of this world become dispensable. It's not like we have to uh, get rid of our houses, get rid of our clothes or anything crazy like that. But the reality is when we treasure Christ, these things of the world become dispensable. We're not dependent upon them. This is what it looks like to hate your life in this world. And thirdly, and finally, hating your life means that you've transferred and surrendered ownership of all that was once yours. 
If you take up the life that is in Christ, then you have transferred ownership of everything. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 33, just a few verses after the passage I mentioned earlier, where he says, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't renounce everything, whoever doesn't relinquish everything cannot be my disciple. We renounce ownership of our lives. So your life is not your life anymore. It is his life. Your time is not your time anymore. It is his time. You steward that for the glory of God. Your money is not your money anymore. It is his money. And you steward that for the glory of God. There's been a transfer of ownership. Let me give an example of this from how you view your home. Whether you have your own home or not, at some stage you'll likely have your own home. If you view your house as a place that solely belongs to you, it's a place of privacy and comfort. It's your physical refuge. It belongs to you and your purposes. Then the reality is you are far more likely to use your home for selfish purposes. So even if you invite people around, you're going to invite the people that you want to invite around. You're going to invite the people that make you feel better. You're going to only invite your best friends, so to speak. There's been no transfer of ownership. The house still belongs to you. In contrast to this, if you've transferred ownership, then rather than your house solely belonging to you, your house becomes a resource for the glory of God. And this doesn't mean that you have to have an open door policy where you have 50 visitors a day. But what it does mean is that you are far more likely to invite people around on their terms rather than your terms. There's something very inhospitable about inviting that person that you want over and saying, right, you can come between 2 and 2.45. I want you out by 2.45 because I've got something to do. Next week you can come just for 35 minutes and then I've got something to do as well. That's not really hospitable. That's more of using your house for selfish purposes. When we transfer our ownership, when we realize that our house is not really our house, when we realize the truth of what Paul said to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received from the Lord? Which is him saying, everything you have is a gift from God, an undeserved mercy from him. When we shift our perspective, when we transfer ownership with our houses, then we see we will practice true hospitality, which in God's eyes is to make strangers feel like beloved friends. That's at the core of hospitality. That's at the root of the word, taking strangers and making them loved. And when we have transferred ownership, then we no longer cling to things out of selfish purposes. We surrender our natural instinct to simply love those who love us. We hate that life of sinful selfishness which clings to self-control and security. Rather, we have abandoned that. We have renounced that. We are doing all things for the glory of God. George Mueller demonstrated this so well in his life. If you're not aware of his life, he was a, a great man of prayer who uh, began countless orphanages and helped uh, hundreds of thousands of orphans uh, over a hundred years ago in Britain, he raised by today's standards millions and millions of dollars and never asked anyone for a cent. He simply prayed 
and people would give him whatever he desired effectively. And George Mueller demonstrated such selflessness that one time someone asked him, what is your secret? And George Mueller said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will. I died to this world. I died to its approval. I died to the approval even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have sought only to show myself approved under God. That was the reality. He died to himself. That was his secret. Now, this is not an easy task. In fact, I would say this is a humanly impossible task. It must be a work of the spirit within us to hate our life in this world, to die to ourselves. This is not natural. We love to cling to our lives. We love to do things that benefit us. And what we should be aware of and what makes this even more difficult in our age is that the bar of discipleship in our context is outrageously low. The normal standard of what we assume Christianity is, I would say is an unbiblical standard. The bar of discipleship is so outrageously low that it seems like we're actually taking up our cross simply because we attend church on a Sunday morning rather than going out for a leisurely brunch. And it seems like we're really forsaking all. Now, this can so easily trap us into assuming that we're taking up our cross and following Jesus Christ, when in reality, we're living as functional atheists with a side plate of Christianity. The rest of our lives don't demonstrate that we have an allegiance to Christ. We'll do that for a few hours a week, but the rest of our lives look like anyone else. And so when the bar is this low, many people who have not surrendered their life to Christ and who are not denying themselves could hear this message and say, yes, I am forsaking all. I am denying myself. I forsake leisurely Sunday mornings to attend church. I give 10% of my income. I even have a work colleague who doesn't like me because they know I go to church. But the reality is that that same person attends church on a Sunday so that they feel better about the fact that the six other days of their week revolve entirely around them and their selfish purposes. They give 10% of their income so that they can feel better about the fact that 90% is solely used for their selfish purposes. And their work colleague simply doesn't like them because they're unpleasant to be around. Now, it's very easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are living according to this. This is a high standard to hate your life in this world, to forsake all, to renounce all that we have in order to follow Jesus. And so what this means is that we must be very careful to compare ourselves to the cultural standard of discipleship because it is often an unbiblical standard. And that's the reality that we must face. The standard that Christ gives us is that we must hate our lives in this world. We must die to sin. We must die to self. We must die to the ways of this world. It's a heavy bar. There is a great story of what true costly discipleship looks like. In fact, there would be many great stories of this that we could turn to. One in particular is from Korean Christians in the 1930s. In the 1930s, there was a pastor in Korea called Chu Ki Choi. 
This was before the division of North and South, before the Second World War. It was when the Japanese occupied Korea and the Japanese did not like Christianity. And it got to a point where they were forcibly uh, making people bow down to shrines following their Shinto religion. And people who did not bow down to the shrines, they would then imprison and torture. And often the way that they would torture them was to bend them backwards to break their backs over a stool as a sign of if you're not going to bow down the right way, we'll make you bow down and we will crush your back and bow you down physically to our shrine. Now, Chu Ki Choi was shepherding a congregation and he preached fiercely against bowing down to shrines, saying that it is idolatry. And he was arrested and he was tortured for many months. And every morning at 5 a.m., his church gathered to pray for him, to pray that their pastor would not bow down, to pray that their pastor would remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And the first Sunday that he got out, the way that they would really torture people was if they didn't respond to the initial several months of torture, they would release them, give them a bit of freedom, and then they would arrest them again and bring them back in. And what happened is the first Sunday he got in the pulpit, he preached that bowing down to shrines is still idolatry. Worship Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, he later died in prison after the years of torture. And he said to his wife before his death, I've gone the road I was supposed to go. Follow my steps. We'll meet in heaven. What a beautiful story. And even greater than this, Chu Ki Choi's son, who was just a young child who witnessed his father being dragged off to prison. We don't know too much about him, but what we do know is that the son of Chu Ki Choi became a great evangelist to South Korea. After seeing his father, after seeing particularly how his father's allegiance to Jesus Christ resulted in him being tortured and eventually dying because of the torture, his son went on to be a great evangelist, perhaps sparking some of the rapid spread of Christianity, which made during the late uh, 20th century South Korea one of the dominant places of Christianity throughout the world, the largest sending base of missionaries about 20 years ago. From the death of one grain of wheat, much fruit comes. From the death of Chu Ki Choi, the literal death and the figurative death where every day he demonstrated what it is to hate his life in this world and follow Jesus Christ. His church looked on. They gathered every morning at 5 a.m. to pray. His son followed in his steps and much fruit came. What a picture of the pattern of Christ here where one man dies to himself in his allegiance to Christ and much fruit follows. I'm reminded of the verse in Revelation 12, 11, where we read of these faithful brothers and sisters who conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And it says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They did not love their lives unto death. Rather, they loved the life that Christ had given them. Now, let me be clear. This is not to say that unless we're tortured, we're not being faithful to Christ. Please don't hear that message. I think just as we do not compare ourselves 
to today's cultural standard of Christianity. We shouldn't look at someone else and justify ourselves or feel depressed. We shouldn't measure ourselves based on the cultural standard. The point here is, of course, then not to look specifically at these Korean Christians. Rather, the point is, of course, to align ourselves with what the word of Christ calls us to. That's the point here. And what he calls us to is a heavy bar. And so we can certainly use the stories of these faithful brothers and sisters in Korea as a time for self-examination. As we think about the willingness of Chu Ki Choi to suffer for Christ, we should ask ourselves in a similar way, are we hating our lives in this world? As we think about the church forsaking comfort to gather and pray, we should examine our own lives and think, are we forsaking all? Are we renouncing our comfort in order to seek the Lord in prayer? And the incredible thing about the Koreans is that it wasn't like they began this 5 a.m. prayer meeting when their pastor went in prison. They just prayed more attentively to his needs. They were already gathering every morning at 5 a.m. This was a normal thing and remains a normal thing for many Korean churches today giving themselves to prayer. It is a beautiful sign of renouncing all that we have in order to pledge our allegiance to Christ. Whoever loves his life loses it. It is only through death to ourselves and death to the ways of the world that we have life in Christ. And what we must see here, just as we then briefly finish the last two points, we must see that Jesus does not call us to anything that he has not perfectly modeled. Jesus calls us to hate our life in this world. He calls us to renounce everything. He calls us to die to ourselves as someone who laid aside the very riches of heaven to take on the form of an impoverished servant and to go all the way to the cross. He modeled what it is to surrender completely as he hung upon the cross and he prayed, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. He modeled what surrender, he modeled what self-denial truly is. And so as we die to ourselves, as we die to sin, as we die to ourselves, as we die to the ways of the world, we are doing so as those who commit ourselves to the one who died in our place, who modeled what it is to lay aside preferences, who modeled what it is to deny himself. This is the call of the Christian Our last two points will be very brief. Thirdly, in verse 26 at the beginning, living in Christ means serving and following him. So Jesus goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. The following here is is ongoing. It is a command to follow Jesus Christ forever. To deny yourself in this world and to embark on a journey of no return, so to speak. There is no half-time break in our discipleship. There is no time out. The call of the disciple is to serve and follow Christ forever. The life of following our own desires is hated by us and we daily take up our cross and follow Christ. So there is a clear responsibility here not to turn back to the ways of the world, not to take a break, 
but to continue to follow Jesus Christ forever. And notice the beautiful promise here that he says, and where I am, there my servant will be also. That's both a reality for us now that Christ is with us. He in fact lives to make intercession for us. His spirit dwells within us, but it is also a promise that as we follow him, we are following him into the joy of our master, into the fullness of our inheritance, where we will then be with the Lord forever. That is the promise for the follower of Jesus Christ. Fourthly and finally, those who serve and follow Christ will be honored by the Father. This is a simple and yet extremely profound statement. Listen to this. Those who serve and follow Christ will be honored, will be honored by the Father. Servants should not be honored by a master, much less men honored by the God of heaven and earth. And yet this is the reality for those of us in Christ. Such is the union that we have. Such is that intimacy. Such is the righteousness that we possess in Jesus Christ that we will be honored by the Father. He will bestow honor upon us. We will receive the crown of righteousness that is stored up for all who have longed for his appearing. We will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the promise. I hope it excites you that we will be honored by the Father. He will say to us, enter into the joy of your master. He looks upon us. The Father looks upon us as those who have done everything right because we have the perfect record of Jesus Christ. So that is the hope for all who have trusted in his son, the pathway to this reward. The pathway to this honor is death. We treasure the life that is in Christ immeasurably more than any life the world offers. We treasure Christ so much more that we hate our life in this world. We hate anything that seeks to do things apart from Christ. Now, just as a final application, Here to those, of course, who are not following Jesus Christ, the message is very clear that you must die to yourself. You must lay no claim of merit. You must abandon every attempt of living with a self-sufficiency, a life that assumes that you can do it on your own. You must see the life that Christ gives as the only one that is of any worth. And that that only comes by dying to self. And dying to self is the equivalent of repenting, of turning away from the life of sin, of trusting in Jesus Christ. And to those who are following Jesus, the application to us is do not grow weary or complacent by buying into this culture of low commitment and an unbiblical bar of discipleship. Don't buy into it. Don't be influenced by it. Let us rather strive all the more to die to a standard of Christianity that looks more like a form of self-directed therapy and meeting consumer needs. Let us reject that and come to the, the bar that Jesus calls us to, to renounce all. Let us treasure Christ immeasurably more than all of the pleasures of this world that could, they could ever offer. As we follow the pattern of a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. Remember that we are following the pattern of a savior. 
who promises to be with us, who has modelled what it is to lay down his life in our place and who will bring us to that final day, that glorious final day where we will be honoured by the Father as those who are in Jesus Christ. Let us strive to enter that day. Let us strive to stir one another on to love and good works. Let us strive to reject an unbiblical standard of Christianity. Let us measure ourselves up against the plumb line that we see in the Word of God. And let us do it together, all for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, this is a, a very heavy message for us. It is a heavy thing to, to read from the Word of God that we must hate our life in this world. And only in hating our life in this world will we keep it for eternal life. But what a gracious thing that in Jesus Christ you would model what it is to hate your life in this world, to lay aside personal preferences, to deny oneself, to say, not my will, but yours be done. What a faithful saviour we have as one who has perfectly modelled this and who calls us to this life as someone who is going to intercede for us in every moment. Never are we left alone. The only time we are left alone is when we strive for self-sufficiency when we do not die to ourselves that is a lonely path but the most comforting path is the one where we die to ourselves where we take up our cross where we see the riches and the treasure of this life that is in christ help us to see that afresh today help us to stir one another on to that end, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.